Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson, senior producer at The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. The Moth is true stories, personal stories told without notes in front of a live audience. I like to think of it as front row seats to other people's lives. This hour, we have four stories for you. We'll visit war-torn Beirut with a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, live through a car wreck with an eight-year-old, go to art school with a burnt-out corporate executive, and learn about the art of persuasion in an animal shelter. First up is Pulitzer Prize winner Philip Caputo. The theme for our show that evening was Made to be Broken, Stories of Disobedience. At rehearsal, we were still trying to choose between two of Phil's stories, the one about being a rookie reporter or the one about being a war correspondent. In the end, we couldn't stand to lose either, and so Phil wove them together. Here's Philip Caputo, live at the mall. I'm going to take you back in time to Chicago, 1969. It was a young reporter's paradise. Four daily newspapers were running day and night, covering a big, rough, corrupt city that pretty much made New Jersey look like Switzerland. (laughs) Well, there I was in the city room of the Chicago Tribune, a young reporter, There was enough cigarette smoke back in those days to give you instant lung cancer. Phones jangling, typewriters clattering, desk men yelling, boy, copy. We didn't have any copy girls back then. And I loved it, and I wanted to prove that I could run with the big dogs. So one night I heard Donna Grella, the Night City editor, yell, Caputo, hat and coat. Now, Grella was an old-timer who went back to the days when reporters wore hats. (laughs) When all men wore hats. And hat and coat meant that I was getting an assignment. About 20 minutes later, I found myself on the 18th floor of the Palmer House, where two young Japanese women had been found murdered in their room. They were with a delegation of Japanese students who were visiting Chicago, And the Palmer House was kind of the Waldorf of the city, the poshest hotel in town. In other words, it was a reporter's red meat. It was a sensational story and a big embarrassment for Mayor Richard J. Daley. A whole crowd of uh, newsmen and photographers filled the hall uh, at the 18th floor elevators. And there were four cops who looked like the starting line for the Chicago Bears blocking the corridor that led to the victim's room, and a police spokesman who was throwing up an informational stone wall to match the meat and muscle behind him. So I called the Night City editor, Agrella, and I said, I can't get anything. Nobody can. And he says, you got to get something. Get something that the competition doesn't have. I said, what? He said, get a description of the room, of the crime scene. I said, How? Guy isn't talking. He said, the Palmer House has fire escapes, and fire escapes have catwalks. Now, I am utterly terrified of heights. (laughs) But my eagerness to run with the big dogs overcame my fear, and I went up a short flight of stairs to the fire escape door, went out it, and pretty soon found myself sidling along this catwalk 200 feet above the pavement peeking into one room after another like some high-altitude pervert. (laughs) Well, eventually I came to the right room, and the drapes were open, and I saw everything. The bodies, the blood, the evidence texts, dusting for fingerprints, 
taking pictures. And I made note of every relevant and irrelevant detail that I could, even the pattern of the wallpaper. And then I sidled on back, went through the fire escape door, ran down those stairs, ran to the phones, no cell phones back then, and I called Rewrite. Well, while I was talking to Rewrite, I saw this like six foot three inch reporter from the Chicago Daily News, who was one of our competitors, kind of leaning toward me, listening in. And I gave him a butt out look, but he'd heard enough to uh, figure out what I'd done. And while I was finishing up with Rewrite, I saw him go through the fire escape door, and I said, uh. Anyway, I finished up with Rewrite, and I remembered one thing. There was one rule that prevailed in Chicago journalism, and it was do whatever you have to do to get the story before anybody else. If you've got to play a few dirty tricks, do it. Well, that fire escape door was pretty much like these doors over here. It had a big brass handle that went right across it like that. And to lock the door, you pull that handle up, and to unlock it, you pushed it down. So I pulled it up. <laughs> About five minutes later, I heard this frantic banging at the door, and I heard the guy from the Daily News in there screaming, let me in, let me in. But I just stood there because I knew that he had about two minutes left before his deadline passed. And I waited till that, uh, that deadline went by, and then I flipped the lock open, and I ran and disappeared into the crowd of newsmen. <laughs> but he, uh, and uh, when I took a look over as he was uh, at the phones calling, and I could see by the expression in his face that he'd missed the deadline. And he uh, spotted me there in the crowd, and he came over to me, towering way over me. And he said, you little bastard. I looked at him and I pretended not to know why he was questioning the legitimacy of my birth. <laughs> and I went back to the city room and I accepted from Don Agrella a big attaboy. All right, so I proved I could run with the big dogs. And about three years later, I was made a foreign correspondent. And for the next three years, I covered wars all over the world. That's mostly what I did. I covered wars in the Middle East and on Cyprus, in Africa, and uh, back in Vietnam, where about seven or eight years before I had served a tour of duty with the Marine Corps. And then in 1975, I found myself in Beirut, Lebanon, covering the Lebanese Civil War, which of all those conflicts was the worst one I had ever seen. An absolutely pitiless, savage conflict that pitted Muslims against Christians and many factions of both, fighting each other uh, and fighting among each other. And I honestly think that Baghdad or Kabul today are not as brutal or as dangerous, as unpredictable as Beirut was back then. And I didn't know it then, but something had happened to me. Might have started back when I was in the Marines in Vietnam, but covering all of that Pointless carnage all over the world had done something to me. It had kind of cloaked my heart in an emotional flak jacket so I could look at the most tragic, the most horrible sights and not really feel much of anything except a kind of contempt for human folly and, yes, sometimes even contempt for victims. I remember once during that Lebanese Civil War that 13 Muslim women during a lull in the fighting came out of their houses, lined up in front of a bakery to buy bread for their families. A Christian spotter saw them and fired a mortar shell right into the street where they were lined up and killed all 13 of them. And all I could think of was how dumb of them to bunch up like that. Well, one day the telex in my office clattered, and the message from the foreign desk said the following. Scoop Magazine, fictitious name, obviously. Scoop Magazine has exclusive interview with PLO Commander Abu Rashid. Where yours? Well, where mine, I thought. Was the, was the foreign editor crazy? 
Of all the dangerous places you could go in Beirut in those days, the most dangerous were the neighborhoods and the refugee camps that were controlled by the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Those of you old enough to remember will remember those guys in the checkered kafiyas with the AK-47s. Well, to go into one of those places would have been a suicide mission. I couldn't figure out how Scoop magazine had done it. Now, we correspondents, in contrast to that sort of hyper-competitiveness back in Chicago, used to cooperate with each other. We watched out for each other. And Scoop's two correspondents, and I'm going to call them Larry and Rick, were good friends of mine. So I went over to their offices, and I told them about the telex I'd gotten, and I says, can you guys help me get an interview with this Abu Rashid? And they both laughed. And then Rick sat back in his chair and he looked at me and he says, go ahead. I looked at him baffled. And then Larry said, Rick is Abu Rashid. So it turned out that Rick and Larry had been getting messages from their foreign editor, who I guess was as clueless as mine about what was going on over there, that they had to get an interview with a PLO commander. And they had replied, also by Telex, Telex were the tweeting of its day. <laughs> um, they also replied, uh, they, they replied that, uh, why don't you ask us to swallow some cyanide? But the editor insisted, and so to avoid dying for a story, they invented Abu Rashid. Well, as I said before, there were a lot of things that you were supposed to do to go get a story, anything to get a story. But there was one thing you were never supposed to do, and I did it. I interviewed Rick. AKA Abu Rashid. And I'll say in my own defense, a lot of other correspondents did the same thing <laughs> in the ensuing days. And uh, the fabulous Mr. Rashid became the most quoted PLO commander <laughs> in the entire Middle East. Well, actually, I'm kind of glad you're laughing at that because it's. Uh, uh, as far as journalistic ethics go, it's pretty, it was pretty shocking. You weren't supposed to do a thing like that. And I have to say that I, I felt pretty much ashamed of myself. So four months passed, and I got another telex. And this one said that the LA Times had scooped me this time, and that uh, their correspondent had filed a story that the Muslims, for the first time during the war, had actually invaded a Christian neighborhood were actually trying to seize territory from the Christian factions. I was told that I had to go out and if the story was true, I was to match it, and if the story was not true, I was to knock it down. Well, I was feeling, still feeling pretty guilty, kind of ashamed about what I'd done four months before, so I said, okay, I'll play it straight this time. And I went out into the streets, and pretty soon I fell into the unfriendly arms of a band of Muslim militiamen, about eight or ten of them all armed with AK-47s. They grabbed me and they said, who are you? What are you doing here? And I replied in Arabic, Sahafi Amerikai, which means I was an American, American press, American correspondent. And one of them said, let's see your press credentials. And I showed him this laminated card that the Ministry of Information in Lebanon uh, gave all of us correspondence. And that card, by the way, could save your life in Beirut in those days. And this guy took out a straight razor and started to cut it in half. And without thinking, I reached up and I grabbed his wrist and I said, give that back to me. And I was sort of stunned by my own temerity and, and what I would say is actually stupidity. And I was even more stunned when he did give it back to me kind of menacingly pointed the rifle at me, but gave it back to me. But with these words, he said, in an accented English, he says, fuck President Ford. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, okay, fuck him. 
I, uh, I turned around and I just started to walk away in the direction they were pointing in. And I, I think I'd gone about half a block when all of a sudden I heard this rattle of automatic weapons fire from behind me. I turned around and, you know, in moments like this, things really do go into slow motion. I saw these two guys running down the street after me, firing their AK-47s on full automatic, just firing wildly like that. Next thing I knew is bits of... Uh, Pavement and bullet fragments hit me in the back of the head and in the back. Well, I ran like hell and once again looked back and I saw one of them kneel down to shoot some more. And then I kept running zigzag John Wayne fashion like you see in the war movies, right up until a bullet smashed right into my left ankle and dropped me. Now, by the purest of luck, I rolled into an intersection that divided the Christian from the Muslim sectors. And my assailants were afraid to pursue me to finish me off. This is what I assume, because they might get shot themselves. And then by the purest of luck, I managed to crawl into the courtyard of an apartment building where a vascular surgeon happened to live. <laughs> he came out and he patched me up as best as he could, but he told me he had to get me to his hospital, otherwise I was going to lose my left ankle, my left foot, and maybe everything from my knee down and my left leg. And he got me to his hospital, but now the bad luck part came in, is his hospital was right in the middle of the worst of the fighting. It was under fire and filled with casualties. So many casualties that the hospital had run out of anesthetic. But the doctor said, that's no matter. He says, your blood pressure has fallen so low. He says, I can't put you under. If I do, you're going to stay there. So, stretched me out on the operating table and in 19th century fashion. Two burly male nurses held me down. Third one put a rubber bar between my teeth so I wouldn't bite my tongue off. And the bullets and the bullet fragments were taken out. Now, I can tell you that the, that pain was like nothing I had ever experienced before. It was utterly scalding. It was as if my left leg and then my entire body were being dipped into boiling oil. Well, anyway, my, my leg was saved, and I was eventually evacuated back to the United States, and I spent about the next year either in a wheelchair or on crutches. And sometimes the pain would come back and was almost as severe as it had been on the operating table. And I quite often would ask myself, why? Why was I wounded like this? Why did this happen to me? That's quite natural. I played by the rules. I went out there to get the story, and I got shot. Why? Well, the heavens were silent. And I realized that if I was going to find some meaning, some answer to this, I was going to have to impose it myself. And I thought back to that time that those 13 Muslim women had lined up in front of that bakery merely to feed their families and how I had so callously and cynically dismissed their deaths. And I started to see myself as a man who had violated another kind of rule. Or maybe it's not a rule, maybe it's a requirement that all of us have to share in each other's sufferings or risk losing our humanity. And I started seeing myself as a man who was maybe not too far from the altered psychological or moral state of the gunman who had shot me for no reason whatever. Why? Why was I wounded? Why indeed? And what I concluded was is that I had been wounded so I would learn what suffering really meant. And I had been made to learn suffering so I would know compassion once again. That was Philip Caputo. Phil is a prize-winning journalist who's also the author of eight works of fiction, two memoirs, and four works of nonfiction. His most famous work, A Rumor of War, was completed as he convalesced from the bullet wound to his ankle. 
In a moment, we'll hear a story about a teenage girl who realizes in an instant all that her parents have done for her. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. Our next story is from Ophira Eisenberg. Ophira is a writer and a comic and a regular host of our Story Slams in New York City. She's also been featured telling stories of her own on the Moth stage. This one is from an evening of stories about parenthood. Here's Ophira Eisenberg. It was a summer after my third grade where my mom was looking for all kinds of activities to keep the kids busy. And she took myself and my brother and my best friend Adrian and her brother to the Jewish Community Center to go for swim and hopefully just tire ourselves out. And then the way back, we were driving home, and my mother uh, took a left turn to drop Adrian off. And at the same time, an 18-year-old ran a red and hit our car. My brother was in the front seat, and his knees went into the dashboard, and he, uh, he was unconscious, but he was okay. And my mother broke her wrist from trying to crank the steering wheel in a last attempt. But she was conscious. Adrian and I were little crumpled messes in the back seat. And her younger brother, who was in the hatchback of the Honda Civic, back when he used to do that and think it was okay, actually walked away without a scratch. I don't remember much about this accident. Um, I don't remember the accident at all. It's all put together from other people's accounts and observations and interpretations. I remember the hospital a lot. I remember waking up in intensive care and my mom and my dad were talking to some doctors. And it seemed like there was quite a kerfuffle going on because my mother kept going, it's a step backwards, it's a step backwards. They wanted uh, to give me an operation, and she was afraid that uh, it was going in the wrong direction and that we were just putting off the inevitable. But the next thing I knew, my dad was by my side, and I looked at him. He was always a pillar of strength, you know, a real authority figure. And he had this look in his eyes that I'd never seen before, a little scared. But then it evaporated into a warm smile, and he said, listen, you're going to go to sleep for a little while, and then when you wake up, I will buy you anything you want. <laughs> so I want you to think really hard about what you want, and when you wake up, I will buy it for you. My dad had never said anything like this to me in my entire life. You know, I was the youngest of six. Uh, we lived well, but very modest. The idea that he would buy me anything, I mean, my brain almost exploded. <laughs> I went in for this operation, and I woke up. Uh, I had a tracheotomy with a metal plate in my neck. And the second I opened my eyes, I knew what I wanted. <laughs> My 20-year-old sister came uh, to visit me, and we were playing this game where uh, she would pretend to see steak and scrambled eggs going through my feeding tube, and I would pretend to taste them. (laughs) And I told her that I had this dilemma with the present that I wanted my dad to buy me. See, it was between a TV and a phone for my room or the Barbie dream house. (laughs) And my 20-year-old sister said, listen, you're gonna have a lot of TVs and phones in your life. You should go for the Barbie dream house. (laughs) My mother was there every day, you know, from the second I I woke up all the way through the months uh, when I was in the children's ward 
every second she was there. And when I was well enough to start eating solid food and I would complain about the hospital food, she responded by cooking meals at home and bringing to me them in Tupperware containers. When in like the, the hospital gowns and the weird pajamas, she brought me clothes from home and new clothes and toys and games. She was always there. And everyone kept telling me how strong I was. How strong, what a strong, brave girl I was. And I relished this attention. I mean, I loved it. It felt like I had accomplished something, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I, I felt like I wasn't doing anything. Adrienne's mother would visit me a lot too, along the way. And I would always ask her like, why aren't you bringing Adrienne? I wanna see Adrienne. But somehow she would just change the subject and I would go with it. Finally, one day when I was strong enough, I just was, wouldn't let it go. I was like, why won't you bring her to play with me? And her and my mother looked at each other. And they said, oh, we think that you're healthy enough to hear this now. But remember, when you describe being unconscious, it felt like you were sleeping for a really, really long time? Well, Adrian never woke up. I heard what they were saying, but I don't think I got it. I mean, I don't think my eight-year-old brain could comprehend that. I didn't cry, because I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I should stop asking for Adrian. Time moved on, and soon I was well enough to finally leave the hospital. I couldn't wait to get home to my room and my dog. And I walked in the house after all these months, and there waiting for me was the Barbie dream house. And it was more beautiful and bigger than I'd ever imagined. And my mom said I could set it up in the living room. <laughs> I wasn't even allowed in the living room. I loved it so much. I, I really wished all the time that Adrian could play with it, it with me because she would have loved it. And I, I mean, I played with it a lot. I would wake up in the morning before school and play with it at breakfast. I would come home at lunch and play with it. I would play with it after school. I would play with it after dinner. I played with it for years. In some people's opinion, too many. <laughs> But I loved that Barbie dream house. And life, you know, moved on. I, I went back to school, and uh, Adrian wasn't there. And they put me in a different class with different classmates than I had been in with the, in the former years. It, it wasn't actually like, you know, continuing my old life. It was like someone gave me a new life. And my parents pretended like everything was normal. They didn't treat me special. They didn't pander to me. They didn't tell me I couldn't do certain things, just like everything was normal. I mean, they, uh, they both survived World War II, my uh, dad in Israel, my mother in Holland, so they were very versed in moving on. And all that special attention just evaporated after a, a while. And I kind of missed it. I kind of resented not having it anymore. When I was about 16 years old, I, uh, my favorite pastime around the house was snooping around. <laughs> because it had occurred to me that adults hide their secret lives from children. And now that I was 16, I wanted to know everything. We had this beautiful antique dining, like, dining room buffet. Uh, that was, had all these little tiny cupboards and drawers with tiny old keys. And I used to love playing with the keys when I was a kid. But now I realized I could use them to unlock all of the cupboards. So I unlocked one of the drawers and found all this cool stuff. There was an old pocket watch from my grandfather and my mother's first uh, passport photo and all these letters. And a letter caught my eye and it was from... Adrian's dad to my mother. It was written about a week after the car accident, um, just after the funeral. 
you know, it never even occurred to me that there was a funeral. Because the whole time I was in operations and there was all this attention on me, it's the first time I'd ever thought of that. And he wrote that uh, he didn't blame my mom for what happened. That that is when God wanted to take Adrian and that his family prayed for us and my recovery. You know, I had never thought of what my mother went through because she never showed me her pain or vulnerability for one second. I can't imagine the blame she felt, the guilt, the responsibility of taking care of someone else's child and then it all going horribly wrong. But she showed nothing but love and uh, things were normal while she was braiding my hair and reading me stories and driving me to ballet. And my dad really was a pillar of strength. And him offering me that present was his own genius way of trying to give an eight-year-old a reason to live, something to look forward to. I wasn't really the strong one. They were the strong ones because they had carefully led me to this place where I could live like an absolutely normal 16-year-old kid. And Adrian was never going to be 16. It hit me hard staring at the handwriting of her mourning father, and I couldn't run off to my Barbie dream house. And for the first time, I sat down at that dining room table, and I cried. Thank you. That was Ophira Eisenberg. I asked Ophira about the experience of telling this story. So last year, The Moth put the story on our podcast. Yeah. And what happened? Obviously, a lot of people listened to it, and I all of a sudden received emails, a, a substantial amount, uh, somewhere close to 100 emails. There were people just saying that they appreciated it. There were people that were in car accidents, some even just seeking advice about how to get through something. And then there was the big email that took me a long time to open, and it was from Adrian's father. And uh, I remember getting that email, and I just stared at it. It was in the highlighted color of an unread email. And I was just like, I can't do it. I just cannot open this right now. I I didn't know what it was going to say. I didn't know if he heard it, and he, and he was upset. I had no idea, and I was just so afraid to go there. But, you know, I finally opened it and read this email. Now, this is the first time I'd heard from this man since his child died, and he had heard the podcast, and it was an amazing email. I mean, it was basically about how ha I wouldn't say happy he was to hear it, because who wants to hear that? But at the same time, he was he enjoyed the fact that I was out there telling the story and giving some sort of closure celebration to this event that had happened to me. He heard from my perspective. I think he liked knowing that I was okay because we have no contact. And, you know, I, I said in the story that uh, I worried that they blamed my mother for what had happened to their child. And he said, you know, we never blamed anyone. Things just happen how they do. And he appreciated that there was some humor in it with the Barbie dream house. And just wish me well and let me knew, know everything that's happening with him and his kids, his other two kids. It was um, it was very powerful. Like, it was one thing to tell a story, the power of telling a story and kind of getting over that. But it was a whole other level to have this kind of contact and realize that something had – I'd thrown something out there. This person listened to it by absolute coincidence, which had caused us to have a new bond later in life that was – really, like, just good. It made me feel a little bit more whole about the whole thing. I About the whole thing. But I think it did for him as well. I think we both sort of just relaxed a little. That was Ophira Eisenberg. To hear my whole conversation with Ophira, check our website, themoth.org.
moment are final two stories from our Slam series, one about a poodle named Coco and another involving sketches of a naked man. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. Our last two stories are from the Moth Story Slams. At each slam, we provide a microphone, a stage, a theme, and an audience. Folks show up with stories to tell, and we pick ten of them. Each person gets five minutes. At the end of the night, judges from the audience pick the winner. This first story is from Trisha Burt. The theme was progress. Here's Trisha Burt, live at the mall. Growing up in the South, there was a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And the right way was to do what your family and society thought you should do. And the wrong way was to do something different. By age 30, I had done most everything I should do. I had overachieved in high school. I'd attended a prestigious college in the South. I had a very important job. I'd married well within the childbearing age, and <laughs> except for moving up north, which caused my family to collectively take to their beds. <laughs> I was on track with what we thought my life should look like, but I wasn't happy, and I knew it was my job. And my family... We were expected to be in business, and I'd been in public relations for seven years, but I didn't like the work anymore. I mean, I was good at it, but I was tired of working for clients like retail banking, and traffic reporting, and hazardous waste recycling, nothing that really blew my skirt up. So <laughs> I quit my full-time job, and I started consulting, and I started taking classes to figure out what else I could do with my life. And I found this brochure for the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I thought, well, this looks interesting. And I went to the continuing education director, and I asked him which class he thought I should take. And he said, you need to take art as process. We take burnout executives in that class all the time. <laughs> it's my first day of art school. I try my best to look artsy, <laughs> to fit in. Even though I'm not wearing pearls, they are emblazoned on my chest. <laughs> and the students range from early teens to late 50s, and they're all there for different reasons. I mean, seasoned artists want to jumpstart, and younger artists want to build a portfolio. Some are professional, others blocked. I just feel really out of place. And Rhoda, our instructor, introduces herself, and she says, there is no right way to make art and there is no wrong way to make art. And this makes me extremely nervous because I have been raised that there is a right way and a wrong way to do most everything. And she says, and the class is gonna focus on process, the process of art making, not the end result. And this makes me more nervous because I've been raised to focus on end results and not just any end results, but the best end results. And there are no grades things careen out of control. <laughs> if there are no grades, how will I know if I'm overachieving? <laughs> I need to know I'm overachieving. We start with the basics, and in my entire life, I have never held a stick of charcoal in my hand, and it feels good. And I survived the first week of simple art exercises, and I enjoy myself. And the next week, Bob, one of the three instructors, says, today we're going to do gesture drawings, very fast drawings, about 45-second poses. And we're going to draw the energy and the movement and the essence of the figure. And I am thinking, what the heck is essence, and how the heck do you draw it? And a man, the artist model, starts to undress. And I say, you know, that's okay. You've seen a naked man before. <laughs> You've even had sex with a naked man before. <laughs> Your problem is you don't know how to draw this naked man's essence. <laughs> and everybody else apparently does know how to draw his essence as they're busily getting out their easels and knowingly getting out sheets of paper and charcoal and other drawing mediums with which they excel. And I'm just standing there like the proverbial deer in headlights, and I begin to watch and imitate because I am clueless 
but competitive. <laughs> and I asked Judy, who is standing next to me, an also mature student, I say, Judy, what are these supposed to look like? Because of course I think there's only one right way to do this, and we're all gonna draw the same image. And she looks at me bewildered and says, they're all going to look different. I'm paralyzed. What is mine supposed to look like? Can't I just do a slide presentation to your board of directors, assess your customer service capabilities, conduct a communications audit? These are things I know how to do, things in which I excel, and I'd like to excel, and there is no way I'm going to excel drawing this naked man's essence. <laughs> I stand there and I consider crying. And then the competitive side of me kicks in, and I say, oh, just snap out of it, you big wimp, and do something. So I start making these hopeless stick figures every 45 seconds, because that's how fast the poses are, every 45 seconds. And every 45 seconds, I feel like a total failure, which is a lot of times in one hour. It's 80. And the shame is enormous. And I am so mortified at how inept I am. And I am beating myself up for ever attempting anything different, for even trying anything new. And I'm in literal physical pain. I am so far out of my comfort level. I mean, I actually hurt. And I consider crying again. And that's when Bob comes over to me and shows me what amazing teachers can do. I don't even know what he says. All I know is he talks me off the ledge and breaks that vice grip that had a hold of me. And I start to draw. At the end of class, Bob picks one of my gesture drawings with, to put on the wall with a bunch of other student drawings to discuss them. And no one laughs at me or my drawing. It actually holds its own. I have drawn a naked man. <laughs> and I feel like I can do anything. Thank you. That was Trisha Rosebert at the Moth Story Slam. She grew up in Tampa, Florida, but also claims some strong Tennessee roots. She left the corporate world in 1995 and is now a writer, performer, and visual artist. Her one-woman show is called I Will Be Good. Next up, Carlos Kotkin, who told his tale at the Los Angeles Story Slam. The theme was persuasion. Here's Carlos, live at the Moth Story Slam. Hello. Um, when I was a kid, I was about nine or ten, uh, I would, used to go with my dad to the dog pound to look at dogs. We'd just go check them out. Sometimes we would take them for a walk and just look at them just like we're going to the zoo. And... Um, one time we were at the dog pound and we're looking and we see this dog and it's an awful, awful looking dog. It was a ratty, small, it was a poodle and um, it was making a weird sound. It was a little older. It was just like, ugh, ugh. And as we're looking at it, the, a woman who worked at the pound walked up to us and she said, do you guys like that dog? And we were being polite. We said, oh, it's interesting. And she said, well, um, hopefully uh, you, you like her enough to take her home because she's uh, about to be killed in 10 minutes. And, and somehow we uh, ended up with this dog in my lap on our way home. <laughs> Her name was Coco. And uh, we get home and let Coco into the house. And Coco runs as fast as she can to my mother who's sitting on the couch and just jumps, jumps on her. It's so like her soulmate. And my mom looks at, at the dog and her immediate reaction is, oh, no. And it was, that was... That was the appropriate reaction. And she told us, take, it, take this dog back. We said, no, we can't because it was about to be killed. And this sweet little old lady begged and pleaded with us. And all she needs is a little love. And we gave her the same cell that the woman gave us. And my mom said, take it back. And, and we said, how about this? Why don't we keep it for a month and see if Coco grows on us? And if, if she doesn't, then uh, we'll find a new home for her. So my mom agreed to those terms. And... Um, Two weeks later, we took an ad out in the Penny Saver, <laughs> advertising this free free dog. Cause she was very strange. She uh, she didn't want to go outside, but she had to go outside to go to the bathroom. But she wouldn't leave the concrete patio, go on the grass. She would only pee and, and go to the bathroom in the cracks of the cement. And she always had to be under something, under the table or under a desk. And she never made a sound except for this really strange, heavy breathing every now and then. 
very odd dog. So we lasted two weeks. We took an ad out in the Penny Saber, and uh, we got a reply, and this family came over to the house to look at this dog, and we saw immediately when they looked at her, like, oh, that's not quite what we were imagining. And we... She's a great dog. She's a little, she's got her idiosyncrasies, but she's, she just needs love, and it's just we've developed allergies, and we can't. <laughs> but take the dog. You'll love her, I promise. And so they, they took the dog, and they were holding her, and they, they had smiles like when people smile when they get a gift that they don't like, and they don't know what to say, and they just drove away with Coco, and goodbye, Coco. And two days later, we got a call from the dog pound. We said, we have your dog, Coco's. <laughs> I said, the parents said, that's not our dog. We, uh, we gave it away two days. Well, she's still got your information, and we're, you're the only contact people. Your Coco is here. And I don't know why, but my dad and I, we thought, well, let's just go visit her. We'll go say hi to Coco. So we went to the pound, and there she was. And uh, she was so happy to see us, and she's wagging her tail. And, oh, hi, Coco. It is you. Yeah. And then uh, after a few minutes, we, we left. We started to walk away, and it was the first time I ever heard Coco bark, and bark, and bark, and bark. And I'm not a dog whisperer, but I'm pretty sure she was saying, where are you going? Take me with you. What are you doing? And we felt really bad, but we kept walking. And we, and, and we got in the car, and we sat in the car, and we got out of the car, and we went back and got Coco, brought her back to the house, and she was like a college roommate that you get a sign that you can't do anything about. She's just... And people would come over to the house and say, what's that? We'd say, that's Coco. She lives here. And she lived with us for a whole another year, and, and, and then uh, she got... She was old, and, and we put her down humanely for real. She it was her... It was her time to go, but uh, she had a good year, and that year that she lived was a whole year she would not have lived were it not for a great deal of persuasion. Thank you. That was Carlos Cotton, who was born in Mexico City and grew up in San Diego, California, went to film school, and is now working on a book detailing his romantic misadventures. It's called Please God, Let It Be Herpes. To learn more about our slams and all of our programs, go to themoth.org, where you can also check out our free weekly podcast or pitch a story of your own right on the website. My name is Candida Pugh. Uh, my story is this. In 1962, I was working with the Congress of Racial Equality uh, in, on a project in North Carolina called Freedom Highways. I was placed in charge because I had been a freedom rider the year before, then um, the rest of the students were new to demonstrating. We were conducting what's called a hit and run, which has two components. The hit, which is you uh, take a, an integrated group into a segregated restaurant, and the run, which is you don't get arrested. Unfortunately, I um, miscalculated and got the entire uh, group thrown into the pokey. You can pitch us your story at themoth.org. Record it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. That's it from the Moth Radio Hour. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. Your host this hour was Jennifer Hickson, senior producer of The Moth. Those of you who did not tell a story but wanted to, I want you to come up here rapid-fire style and give us a one or two-sentence synopsis of what your story was going to be. Is that cool? Is everybody down with that? The stories in the show were directed by Jennifer and by Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth. When I was a kid, I was really into Dalmatians, and I figured the best way to see one was to start a fire and get the fire department to my house. (laughs) 
The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Brandon Ector. So, I'm in the Arab village, which is two kilometers from my kibbutz, and I say to Kamal, I don't trust you because you're an Arab, and you don't trust me because I'm a Jew. And that was the start of a very long friendship. Moth stories are true, as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. My father's last words were, um, it's never too late. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from John Zorn. I have so much anxiety that I don't even want to take anxiety medication because I'm scared of the side effects and I... <laughs> The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. When I was 12, I got stuck in a hollow tree stump, and it almost made the national news. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. When I was three years old, my nanny liked to hold me underwater for long periods of time in the bathtub. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I've been maced in the face. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.